and welcome to the Hospice News Podcast Elevate. My name is Jim Parker. I'm editor of Hospice News. And today we're going to be talking about False Claims Act cases and how hospices can protect themselves, as we have seen the incidents of these cases rising in recent years. With me today is Nick Jerkowitz, a partner at Fenton Law Group. He has a wide range of experience representing and advising healthcare providers on litigation and regulatory-related matters. He's represented providers in all aspects of administrative hearings and investigations, including before the Medical Board, Board of Registered Nursing, Board of Psychology, Board of Pharmacy, Physical Therapy Board, and Board of Occupational Therapy, as well as providers in contract disputes, business towards insurance fraud cases, employment discrimination cases, unlawful unemployment termination cases, and Medicare and Medi-Cal, that is uh, California's Medicaid program, fraud-related cases in that program. Uh, he also counsels clients on complying with federal and state laws in the establishment of healthcare-related businesses and ventures. Nick, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. And uh, first, I wondered if you could tell us, uh, we read your, went through your bio, obviously. If you could tell us a little more about your legal background and the types of cases you've worked with in terms of hospice and health care. Sure, I'd be happy to. I think you gave a pretty good overview of sort of the types of area of laws that I work in. But um, in terms of, you know, hospice, and, and I, I often think of hospice and home health care as very related. They're two very similar areas of practice and facilities, and there's a lot of laws that overlap between the two. And, you know, the, the, the main areas that you deal with those as a lawyer are, of course, on the contract side, so buying and selling hospices and home health agencies, dealing with the whole, you know, process that goes with assisting someone in buying or selling that, getting certified by the various licensing agencies, getting, you know, within the Medicare system, representing those entities sometimes unrelated to a sale, but there are administrative issues. So, you know, Medicare can often come in and say, you know, you're no longer going to be a provider for us, which could, of course, be devastating. So that's a neither a criminal nor a civil thing. It's an administrative area of the law. And so that's a big part of the practice is, is assisting, you know, a hospice or other entities in making sure that they don't get kicked out of Medicare for, and it could be for various reasons, either for malfeasance or perhaps just negligence and, and not being um, as on top of their game as they should be. And then, of course, with a, with a big area with the hospice is, is anything fraud related. And that can come down in, in, in overpayment requests directly from CMS or some other payer that says, you know, we shouldn't have paid you on these claims or for these services. You need to pay us back. And so that, of course, involves a serious investigation and an analysis as to whether or not a claim like those, you know, claims that you were improperly paid for services are legitimate or not. And then, of course, there's there's the more egregious cases that result in either fraud actions or fraud investigations claiming that some sort of illegal activity took place and resulted in claims being submitted to the federal government. And that uh, leads directly into my next question, and uh, that is if you could tell us, what is the False Claims Act? What do hospices need to understand about that law? Yeah, so, and I'll answer that specifically for what hospices would need to understand for that law, because it does, it's a broad law that applies to a number of sectors. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, the way you look at the, the False Claims Act is it's a federal law, 
And though, as, as I'm sure we'll discuss, there are various state versions of it throughout the United States. But it's a federal law that essentially prohibits, you know, uh, an individual or an entity, a group or an uh, organization from filing a false claim, that is, submitting a claim to any federally funded any federally funded healthcare program, which is usually going to be Medicare or TRICARE. TRICARE is the, the military arm of Medicare, though it could be the Medicaid system as well. And then any claim for federally, you know, any claim submitted seeking reimbursement from one of those federally funded healthcare programs that the individual knowingly or with reckless disregard uh, submits a false claim, essentially a claim that should not be paid and that that individual knows, or as I said, has reckless disregard with respect to the fact that it is a false claim. So there's a lot to kind of parse out from that. And of course, there's a tremendous amount of case law and analysis on the length of, you know, that kind of law and what it actually enforces. But, you know, the typical False Claims Act claims that we'd be talking about would be, you know, submitting a claim for services that were never provided, you know, upcoding submitting a claim for services that were provided, but using a code or using a modifier or something that would allow you to get a higher reimbursement that is unwarranted or unnecessary, providing services that you know to be completely medically unnecessary. So you did the service, but there was absolutely no reason for you to have done it. And then, of course, anything that could be a improper referral, you know, paying someone kickbacks for the referral, anything any situation where you improperly pay someone, you know, there's there's a number of federal laws that prohibit payments for kickbacks or anything, any payment in, in return for a referral, those could also be the basis of a False Claims Act. You know, under the False Claims Act, you know, in addition to those being the basis for it, you know, it appears in, in various different ways. And I, I don't know if you want, would like it to discuss what it looks like when a false claim action and enforcement action takes place. So, you know, look, obviously, the False Claims Act is both is a criminal act, so engaging in a false claim, you know, seeking payment for services that you didn't render, could lead to certain penalties on the criminal side. So obviously, potential jail, financial penalties, things like that. It could also lead to um, a a lawsuit being filed, and so the lawsuit gets filed usually in one of two ways. It's either a whistleblower who is called a relator, the whistleblower or the relator might file the lawsuit themselves, and they, they file what's called a KETAM lawsuit in the name of the government, and the government then has an opportunity to decide whether to take it or not, and oftentimes, or sometimes, the government might just file their own lawsuit, and they don't have a whistleblower or a relator in that case. And uh, when the government brings a suit, uh, what agency typically does that? Is it like CMS file the suit? Is it a Department of Justice action? It's going to be a Department of Justice action, but, you know, because we're talking about, you know, essentially Medicare fraud or, or something with a federally funded program, oftentimes when they're investigating these and they're, they're developing a case, there's a lot of government agency, they're working together. So the lawyers from the Department of Justice will likely be working with perhaps the FBI um, and then CMS and OIG, you know, to get an understanding of exactly what's going on here, because it is pretty complicated and, and you know, it's if he, some some cases of potential fraud are very easy to identify and spot, right? You know, we know that these services weren't provided and they were built for. That's easy. But when you're talking about potential referral issues or providing unnecessary medical services, that becomes more complicated. And, and you know, you need good 
the agencies need to work together to get a good idea of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Can you tell us some factors that could put a hospice at risk of an FCA suit? Yeah, you know, obviously in a non-technical sense, it's just not being careful. I think any time, and the bigger the hospice, of course, the more likely they are to have uh, lax oversight. Or perhaps things can fall through the cracks is a better way to say it. But yeah, I think just on a basic 30,000 foot view level, you know, you, you want to be careful. You want to make sure you're doing things the right way. So having a good compliance program, having the right people, educating your employees, educating your staff, knowing what's allowed and what's not allowed it is a huge first step. So if you're ignorant to the law, you're much more likely to break it or violate some rule than if you know what it is. So I think first and foremost, I would say having an understanding and, and knowledge of what's allowed, what's not allowed, and having a good education to your team, and then having a good compliance program, having people who are monitoring this, reviewing this, making sure that things are being done appropriately. And you want to have really good oversight over your employees because sometimes, and again, the bigger the organization, perhaps it's more likely that this occurs, you could have situations where employees are the un, you know, unbeknownst to the actual organization, they are doing some kickbacks on the side. They are involved in some scheme, you know, because they're not, and they're not being properly monitored. There are other factors, you know, that also could lead to potential, uh, one of them is being relations with physicians. So again, because referral issues could lead to a false claims act, oftentimes, you know, your main source of referral at a hospice, let's say, could be a home health care, it could be a nursing home, or it could be physicians in the community who see the patients. And oftentimes, you know, there is a desire to have some sort of formal relationship between the referring provider or the referring entity and the hospice. And so anytime you're thinking about doing that, that needs to be really scrutinized and make sure that it's it's legal. You know, there there, there may not necessarily be a prohibition against having some sort of financial relationship with a potential referral, but it's definitely a possibility that it could be. And in many situations, it will be prohibited. And so that that's another area where huge enforcement can take place and there could be major problems. I know that documentation tends to figure heavily in these cases, uh, whether it's certification documents or, or the claims themselves. Can you uh, go through some of the key pieces of documentation that hospices need to get right in order to be in compliance and avoid an audit or an FCA case? Yeah, so specifically to a hospice and then generally to any healthcare provider, specifically to a hospice, I think the most important documentation that you really, really want to have down really, really solid is the certification and the recertification, right? You know, hospice cannot just be given to anyone. There needs to be this proper certification process. And, and you know, the idea being that this is a an individual who has six months or less to live and therefore they're eligible for hospice. Of course, in many situations, they live beyond six months or, and, you know, it's hard, you know, of course, it's very difficult to predict life expectancy even in those types of situations. So then they often can get recertified and it's allowed under the system, but you want to make sure that your documentation is one, correct, that the certifications and the recertifications are based on medical necessity, good medical judgment. They aren't being done for any other reason. And you have that documentation properly there. And not only do you have the documentation there, but you want to make sure the documentation contains all of the 
information that's necessary because there are certain requirements to meet the certification and recertification. So, and then part of that is on the on the physician, on the people who are doing the certification, and part of it is on the hospice, making sure that they have that documentation there before they engage in in further services. You know, so yes, the doctor should prepare proper documentation, but the hospice also needs to make sure they have that there before they actually start providing services. So it's on both of them. Now, in a in a more general sense, not necessarily specific to hospices, any healthcare organization that bills for services. You need to have good documentation for the services that are being provided on a daily basis or on, on, on per occurrence. So good oversight and making sure that we have all the documents we have, the documents demonstrate what services were provided because, again, even if the certification is appropriate and this patient is totally eligible for hospice, you know, you, they, the CMS may still come back and say, well, why, you know, show us that you actually provided services or show us that you provided the actual services that you said you provided over all this time, in which case you need to have good documentation to be able to support that. If you don't have the medical records or the documentation to support that you did what you did, it's going to be very, CMS is, is going to likely take the position that how do we know you provided these services? And if hospice does become involved in such a suit or, or gets accused of false claims, what should their first priority be as they, as they craft a response? In other words, their first priority in responding to a claim that, hey, you've done something improper? Yes. Okay, so I, I think that anytime you get one of those letters or a call or whatever it is, or even a lawsuit, whatever it is that advises you that you may have done something wrong, you know, Depending on what you receive, you know, the first thing you may want to do is call with your attorney, right? Either the in-house counsel or external counsel and, and get help in, in dealing with this. Cause obviously now we've got a situation that seems to be a potential, a real liability here. But beyond that, and likely what an attorney would help advise you is you want to get a handle on what you're being accused of. So I think that's the first and foremost thing you need to do anytime you receive one of these letters or a lawsuit is what are they accusing us of having done? And is it true or not? Or, or is there a basis for them to, to make that claim? So that's going to require an internal look, right, inside. Obviously, if you know that you've been paying people to refer you business, it's pretty obvious. You know what you're being accused of. You know what you did. And, and we don't really need to do a huge investigation for that. But when it comes to medical necessity and whether or not you've fully followed the rules, you need to do some sort of knowledge, internal audits to see whether or not we've done this. And so you want to look at the billing, you want to look at the claims that have been submitted, you want to look at the documentation and see if the services were provided. You know, you can get these letters and oftentimes the assumptions made against you are wrong. But that's, I think, the, the first big step that needs to take place is getting a handle of it. And then once you get a handle what occurred and what happened and whether or not there's potential liability, then you figure out, okay, what is our liability? What, what Maybe we did do something wrong unknowingly or, you know, mistakenly we did bill for something we thought we could and it turns out now we can't. Then you need to figure out what's your liability and then depending on what, again, what information has been presented to you, whether it's an audit by CMS, whether it's a lawsuit or, or, or some sort of investigation, you then want to take the step of figuring out how do we resolve this. That might be, you know, if you know you owe money back or you know you did something wrong, then really the next step is, how do we resolve this properly? And, you know, there, there is a requirement that once you know, and this could be a good tool in preventing 
problems within the hospice is once you know that you've been improperly paid by, the, let's say, the Medicare system, that you, you, know, you received money for services and now you've learned you shouldn't have received that money, you have a certain time period in which you need to, once you've made a determination definitively, okay, look, I shouldn't have gotten this money, you have to pay that money back to the federal government. You can't just keep it and say, oh, you paid me, I shouldn't have got, I, I, you know, too bad for you. No, you have to give that money back and you have a certain time period to do so. And that's another important, perhaps, defense to potential false claims act is as you periodically audit yourself and make sure that you're in compliance, when you learn you may not be in compliance, make sure you take the steps to definitively determine whether or not money needs to be paid back and then pay that money back. Almost always, if you pay the money back, it should lead to no repercussions. Not always, but it often will not. Thank you. And uh, can you speak to some strategies that hospices and, of course, their representation could use to build a defense during an FCA case? How, you know, what kind of arguments can they make? Well, again, all the arguments would likely depend on what you're being accused of. But, you know, obviously knowledge, right? We talked about the, the, the False Claims Act. Knowledge is required, you know, either knowingly or with, you know, disregard, reckless disregard. So the first defense is, do you, did you know that you did something wrong? Because this innocent mistake that, that, you know, for complicated issues, that, that could be a major defense to a lot of the penalties that come with the False Claims Act. Now, of course, you'd have to pay the money back. Mm -hmm. You didn't know what you were doing was wrong, but that could be a defense to a lot of the penalties and potential criminal liability that comes with this. So yeah, that, that I think is, is probably, you know, an answer to that question. Excellent. Well, Nick, again, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you making the time. I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from, from this discussion and uh, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime.